Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with Zach Bitter. Welcome back to another episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast. I am your host, Zach Bitter. All right, so I picked this episode to release today partly because I'm coming back from an exciting project that I took part in this past week which is called The Speed Project. So for those who do not know, The Speed Project is this interesting event, something different than what I've ever done before for a variety of different reasons. But one is it's uh, this race essentially where you start in Los Angeles and run from the Santa Monica Pier all the way to Las Vegas with a team of six people. And you can set up your route however you want. You can structure the logistics however you want. You just have to have one runner out there on foot and then you decide how you wanna kinda chop up the relay sections and things like that. So the team of six that I was on was put together by one of my sponsors, Ultra Footwear. And we went from the Santa Monica Pier to Las Vegas in just over 30 hours. It took us 30 hours and two minutes to, to complete the route. And it had everything from city roads going through Los Angeles all the way to uh, your trails out in like the middle of nowhere essentially before arriving arriving into Las Vegas for the finish uh, towards uh, the, the center of the city there. And it was just such a cool, unique thing because I'm used to ultra marathon running in the sense that you start a long race that's gonna be long, but you're kind of responsible for the moving portion of that by yourself. So this obviously had the team element being a six person relay and it also had another really interesting element in that you're only running you know part of the time you're always you're doing a lot of waiting for your turn to kind of do that and depending on how you structure the intervals will depend on how much gap there is and stuff like that so uh, it was just a really cool experience something fun i learned a lot actually about what i think how much a role being able to stay hydrated and being able to take in uh, an adequate amount of fuel i guess you would say in in terms of uh being able to kind of stay on top of your energies throughout something that long since you're not fighting this kind of essential downward trend of not physically being able to keep up with your energy output and your hydration needs like you would see in an all-day full ultra marathon that you'd be doing solo by yourself so that was kind of an interesting to do and experience i think i, I might add like a lot more details about just kind of some of the stuff that i took away from that particular project and when uh, with one of the solo episodes, but for this episode, I wanted to uh, bring to you two guests at once. So it is an interview episode, and for it, I welcome back a former guest, Dr. Mike Nelson. Dr. Mike joined me for episodes 223 and 245 previously. In those episodes, we dove into the topic of metabolic flexibility and how this concept impacts sports performance and lifestyle. I wanted to bring Dr. Mike back onto the show because he and I have discussed what type of scenarios would look to be most beneficial for using a strict ketogenic diet from a performance standpoint. I wanted to dive into this topic a bit further based on our conversation and I had a consultation client of mine uh, reach out to me. Uh, his name is Akshay Nanavati and he is a United States Marine veteran, speaker, entrepreneur, ultra marathon runner, and author. He served in Iraq during Operation Iraqi Freedom and was later diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder. His book, Firvana, was endorsed by the Dalai Lama and Jack Canfield. So what brings the two of us all together, or the three of us all together, I should say, 
was when I recently finished a consultation with Akshay where we were looking over his massive project that he's about to tackle, which will involve him pulling a sled through Antarctica, through Antarctica for roughly 2,700 kilometers. It's going to be like a 105-day project. And Akshay has an impressive resume when it comes to these long treks. He's done things including like climbing Denali, Mara Peak, Kilimanjaro. He has spent a month on a 350-mile ski crossing of the world's second largest ice cap in Greenland and running across Liberia as well. So since Akshay's next 2,700-kilometer Antarctica trek will be his longest yet, he plans to incorporate a strict ketogenic diet since he will have to pull all his supplies on a sled and wants to be as efficient as possible with his fueling strategy and the items he brings with him in order to minimize weight and some of the logistical hurdles that are going to come along with this trip. So this is the exact scenario that Dr. Mike and I discussed and possibly being an ideal type of strategy for uh, Akshay. So I thought it'd be fun to have Akshay come on, talk with Dr. Mike as well as myself and hear what other ideas and pointers Dr. Mike may have for, for Akshay as he continues to prep for this project. Along the way in our discussion with Akshay, he shares some of the stories of his adventures and incredible life experiences. I had such a blast talking with these two and look forward to bringing all of you in on the conversation. So also available before we get started is some updated episodes on the show's Patreon page uh, that are available for you if you join in early release ad-free fashion. Included in those are my interview with Dr. Nick Grainer, where we discuss lifestyle medicine through exercise, nutrition, and working with people at an individual level. I also had Dr. Emily Spleichel, where we look at foot and lower leg health and strength and how that all kind of connects to the rest of the body and proprioception of the foot and much more. And then also I had my friend Aaron Alexander come back and we dove a bit further into his approach to full body alignment. If you remember when I had him on previously, we dove pretty deep into breathing and kind of what that does uh, in terms of like your awareness and the way your body kind of aligns and connects with itself. So uh, we wanted to go deeper into some other topics, had a blast, did that one in person because Aaron's here in Austin. So if you do like the in-person interviews better, uh, and want to see the visual side of it, that would be a good one to maybe check out on the YouTube channel versus the audio, but they will be available on both. Right now, that one's on Patreon though. So if you want to get it early, ad-free, head over there and check that out. Uh, also, I want to do a quick shout out to Martha Wright and Sherry as two of the newer members of the show's Patreon page. So thanks for that support, Martha and Sherry. It's greatly, greatly appreciated. And I hope you enjoy the ad-free early release audio over there. If you're interested in early release ad-free op audio options, you can find the show Patreon page by going over to my website where the show landing page is at zachbetter.com forward slash HPO. If you would like to support the show through non-third-party application, you can also make single-time donations at zachbetter.com forward slash HPO as well. Show sponsors are another way that you can support HPO. A full list of the show sponsors, their listener discount options, and links can be found at zachbetter.com forward slash HPO sponsors. Sponsoring this episode is my friends at Bioptimizers and their product Breakthrough Magnesium. It is the only organic full-spectrum magnesium supplement that includes seven unique forms of magnesium, 
There are actually seven unique forms of magnesium and you must get all of them if you want to experience its calming sleep enhancing effects. I take two of the capsules before bed at night. That's why I recommend Magnesium Breakthrough by Bioptimizers. As always, Bioptimizers offers their 360-day money-back guarantee, so you can try them at try them out risk-free and see for yourself if they work for you. You can head over to bioptimizers.com forward slash human and enter promo code HUMAN10, that's H-U-M-A-N-1-0, to get 10% off your next order. The link and promo is in the show notes and also at zachbetter.com forward slash HPO sponsors. Also supporting this episode are my friends at Optimal Carnivore. Organ meats are some of the most nutrient-dense foods on the planet. Despite their benefits, sometimes it can be difficult to incorporate them into your diet. Optimal Carnivore aims at making these nutrients easier to access with their products, which include grass-fed organ complex, bone marrow complex, and grass-fed beef liver. These products work great for busy people who are traveling or as they develop an appreciation for organ meats. Their grass-fed organ complex has nine different organs, including beef liver, brain, thymus, heart, kidney, spleen, pancreas, lung, and gallbladder. Bone marrow complex contains the same compounds as bone broth. Their products are 100% grass-fed and grass-finished and free of hormones, pesticides, antibiotics, and GMOs. They also plant one tree for every product sold. If interested, you can visit amazon.com forward slash optimal carnivore and use the code HUMANSAVE10, that's HUMANSAVE10, for 10% off your next order. As always, all HPO sponsors, links, discounts can be found by visiting the show sponsor page at zachbitter.com forward slash HPO sponsors. Thanks guys for taking some time out of your early morning slash afternoon, Dr. Mike and late evening. Hey, (laughs) thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Yeah. Likewise. And I think maybe one of the better ways to go about this, since we kind of have some background knowledge on us, but the the guests are completely in the dark at this moment is actually, if you want to just give us a little bit of a, a description of kind of what you're planning on doing this year. Sure. Yeah. So what I'm, well, I guess I'll start with what I'm doing this year and then what it's all leading up to. So this year I just returned from an expedition in Antarctica where my team and I became one of only 26 human beings to ski up the very remote Axel Heiberg glacier that Roald Amundsen used to reach the South pole exactly 110 years ago. I ended up getting frostbite on the expedition. Probably will lose the tips of two of these fingers, as you can see here. Uh, Yeah. Two of my fingers got very, very black and I got frostbite and had to be evacuated. But the, so the timeline changed of what my current plans are, but the dream has not changed. So now what I'm doing, I'm waiting for the fingers to recover. And as soon as they do in October of this year, I'll be doing a 22 day ski crossing of the Patagonian ice cap, followed by an 1100 uh, kilometer expedition skiing to the South pole via a route called the Hercules inlet. It'll be a solo expedition. And then in March of next year, I will be doing about four to six weeks up in the Arctic on various expeditions in Svalbard and the Arctic Ocean, uh, more just more time on ice as polar training, because all of this is leading up to the big expedition, which is in November 2023, which will be a 105 day solo 2700 kilometer ski crossing of the entire continent of Antarctica. This has never been done before. It'll be the first ever human powered crossing of the continent. I'll be dragging about a 400 pound sled 
uh, with all my food and my supplies. So completely unsupported out there for, um, I'm still working out my routine for the day, but 12 to anywhere from 18 hour, 12 to 18 hours a day, um, work, working to try to make this distance. It's, I believe a solo expedition like this has been attempted once and, and it wasn't even remotely close to successful. The person stopped at the South pole, which was the half day, halfway mark. So, and it'll be, it'll be the longest, uh, longest solo expedition in human history. The first ever unsupported crossing of the continent, whether it be by a team or solo, um, in terms of not using wind power or not using dogs. And it'll also be the longest unsupported expedition in human history as well, in polar history as well. So pretty daunting to say the least. <laughs> yeah, it's an incredible project. And uh, I, I really feel kind of guilty about worrying. I, I had some frostbite on the tips of my thumbs once upon a time running in Wisconsin in the middle of winter, but they recovered quite <laughs> nicely. So you definitely experienced a little worse than I did. And hopefully you'll have yeah. some solutions for that for the for the upcoming project. But yeah. um, I know when, when we when we chatted before, your kind of big overreaching question or wonderment was, is this a type of thing where it makes more sense to go like more strict ketogenic approach? Because like you mentioned, you'll be pulling a 400 pound sled, you are supplying yourself. So there's no aid stations. Mm -hmm. And my, my thoughts were like, if there ever was like a spot where a strict ketogenic diet would maybe be the leader in the clubhouse with even the limited amount of research we, we have with types of projects that you're doing, this would probably be yeah. it. Uh, so we looked at some, maybe some processes of, of, um, what you'd maybe do leading into that as well as the event itself. Cause there's kind of those two dual things. you got your training leading up to it, mm -hmm. the food mm -hmm. you're going to eat and the stuff you're going to focus on to get through that training, maximize that training. But then the event itself, which could be a little bit different, even, I mean, it's gotta be, there's no way you replicate the project in training at that high of a level. So uh, Dr. Mike, do you want to jump in and either ask some questions to get more info or give your first, first thoughts about it? Yeah, I would just be curious, what have you done for nutrition so far? And like, how has that worked out for you? Like, what have you experimented with and was kind of your body reacted to so far? So on previous polar expeditions beyond Antarctica, this time I've also done a one month ski crossing of Greenland, where we dragged about 190 pounds left for 550 kilometers. I've done multiple mini expeditions in Norway. So I've been in the polar regions a fair bit, but none of them have remotely compared to what I'm aiming for and the rigor, like the, 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 the level of precision I'll have to do on this expedition. So for example, in, when I was in Antarctica this year, my daily food bag weighed about 1.2 to 1.3 kilos. Now for a hundred, and we didn't, I didn't care too much because, you know, I didn't need to, but for 105 days, I got to be much more ruthless about cutting that down. And my goal is to get that under one kilo. So to get that under one kilo, I did the sort of math of, you know, weighing that fats are nine, nine grams, right? For, uh, proteins and carbs are four. So to get a 7,000 calorie bag under one kilo, I, the, the math, the way it worked out was 5,400 of those calories in fat. So 600 grams. 1,000 calories in carbs, 250 grams, and 600 calories in protein, 150 grams. So about 77 plus percent of that is in fat. And this will allow me to get 7,000 calories under one kilo. And just one more thing in terms of how I'm breaking it down, and then I'll jump back to you to get your thoughts on just initial thoughts on this plan. The game plan is for day one, two, one through five to eat about 4,500 calories because the first few days you're you know just not able to consume that much yet. Day five through 10, 5,500, and then pretty much day 10 onwards, going up to 7,000. 
because even at 7,000, I'll probably build, still be at a somewhat, somewhat of a deficit. So 7,000 was a high mark. Originally, I was aiming for 5,500 to 6,500 calories, but the just being out there for 105 days, you know, as you know, like the cumulative effect, it's not like it's twice as hard as 50 days. It's exponentially harder because you've got that buildup, right? So that's why I was like, I really need to get the calories as high as possible while keeping that that sled down. So I don't have the 70 days in 80 days in, I'm just, you know, dying, uh, which probably will be anyway, but, <laughs> but at least minimize that effect. If that makes sense. Yeah, no, I mean, I think, uh, but to echo kind of what both of you are saying that I think a ketogenic diet to me makes sense with the two main factors being, if you're looking at just, you know, all out performance, one would be how long are you going, right? The longer distance you go, the more a ketogenic type approach makes sense to me. And then mm-hmm. too, exactly what both of you guys were saying is that just the pure efficiency of it, right? So a lot of athletes don't have to carry everything with them, much less do it in a cold environment, much less do it, you know, self-motorized against the weather, everything else. So in that sense, because fat is so calorically dense, like you just did the math, which was perfect. I think it, from an overall movement economy sense, it makes a lot more sense to me because you can use ketones, which are kind of between fat and carbohydrate from just a pure biomechanic or biochemical energy standpoint. But the efficiency, I think you make up for it because they're so dense and they don't take up as much space. They don't weigh as much to keep your calories that high. That that makes sense to me. Got it. And then in terms of the carbs, like, do you think that's too much carbs? Uh, one, one friend we were chatting with, like it might kick me out of ketosis or is that a problem considering how much energy I'll be burning as well as the proteins yeah. is grams of protein enough? Yeah, I would say, you know, protein, I would still probably air a little bit on the higher side. Like what's your body weight approximately? Oh, I'm about 160 now and I'll put on some more before I go onto the ice. Yeah. So I would say the protein amount to me seems pretty good, right? Because you're going to have a lot of breakdown of tissue just in general for that amount of work. So I would air a little bit higher on protein. Um, In terms of carbohydrate amounts, it varies all across the board. Zach can comment on this too. Like I've seen some people have to just reduce their carbohydrates to almost nothing. But the caveat with that is that they're just not doing that much work. Right. And Zach can speak to this more than I can. Like the more work you do, the longer the events, like you can eat a lot more carbohydrates and probably still stay in ketosis. Right. Just because you're just burning through so much fuel at that point. Um, I've seen people eat into the hundreds and still stay in a, a state of ketosis. The, the caveat with all that is you'll probably have to do some type of simulation a little bit to see where you're at, because we don't have as much data on that. And I've seen just massive difference from one individual to the next, right? You could have like two athletes that kind of like the same on paper and carbohydrate amount is, you know, it's going to be a little bit different with each one of them. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, Zach. Yeah, I think generally speaking, even if you're like, what we would suspect to be like a a slow responder and need to bring your carbohydrates down lower to push the numbers of like that we would expect to see in a ketogenic diet, given your activity level, that's going to probably overshadow that. And then some, did you, what would you say the estimate was for your daily, like energy expenditure for this? 8,000 plus on Mm -hmm. the the incline days, probably more. 
Yeah, so, it's just massive. Yeah, it's so it's so <laughs> massive. Yeah, because I mean, it's essentially like a race day for me, but yeah. done over and over and over again. And one thing that I always obviously this is an N of one experiment that I did. So like Dr. Mike said, it's going to, you know, whatever variance I had compared to you would be a very important piece to this. Uh, but, you know, I did a, a pretty thorough testing of blood ketones. I think I tested two to three times a day for about a three week period during a peak phase of my training where my carbohydrates are their highest during the training cycle. And I was mm -hmm. still pushing up to like 2.0 to 2.2 millimoles of blood ketones during quite a few of those tests. So, and I was hitting numbers, you know, up close to 200 grams a day sometimes during those granted, there were some pretty big workouts in there, 20, 30 mile sessions and things like that. And I was trying to concentrate the carbohydrates as close with that, or if not into the workout as possible. And uh, that, that may have made a difference uh, since those would have been the times of day where my energy expenditure would have been the highest. And I, I may have just cleared a lot of that before I had a chance to really notice on a blood ketone reading, like that I had been dipping in and out of ketosis. Uh, yeah. So I would think, uh, it, you said it was with your percentages. I know you were like really into that 77% number. Cause that was like a, was that for a digestive thing that you were thinking? No, that's the, that's the ratio. I mean, so the carbs and proteins, it can, it can kind of change, but that's how much fat I need to keep that much calories under one kilo. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. 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 Like a day bag of food under one kilo. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I would think, I think the biggest question here isn't necessarily like, do you have too many carbs in your current plan is more the question to me is where would you want to put those? Uh, one thing I don't have, and this is maybe something that Dr. Mike, you may have seen some more than I have is like my experience with low carbohydrate diet was an improvement in my sleep quality, but just as many people that I've worked with who uh, have tried some form of a low carb ketogenic diet have had the exact opposite experience where they end up feeling much better if they bring their carbohydrates more to the back end of the day from a sleep quality standpoint. So my biggest fear when I was originally planning my transcon trip last year was what happens if I hit like a stretch of a few days where I just can't sleep for, for anything is like, how much is that going to compound? So yeah. I think like, a big piece to this puzzle is maybe like, how can you enhance sleep quality when you do have those opportunities and is carb placement going to either negatively or positively impact that in any way? Yeah. So, I mean, do you like that with that said, I mean, what do you think, Dr. My, like, I know we chat, Zach, we kind of chatted about it. Like should I carb load on the end? Cause ordinarily in my previous polar trips, I've always had a lot of carbs on breakfast, like some sort of oatmeal kite type con concoction. And I was thinking of removing that based on our conversation, Zach, as one, it'll, you know, eliminating carbs in, in the front end, as you suggested. And then two, if I'm not boiling water, uh, boiling snow in the morning, that saves not only I can reduce my fuel count, but it saves time, which allows me more time on ice to cover the daunting kind of distances I need to cover. And just having maybe, and this is, again, I'd love your take on like, as far as breakfast, I think you were suggesting proteins, fat. So I can even share like kind of what I've come up with for my lunch like on the lunches are on the go meals and then dinners. And I'm thinking like for dinner is actually to have what one would consider a breakfast and oatmeal concoction. So we'll kind of, I'll share what I'm thinking and, you know, please let me know your thoughts. Like for dinners, it'll be a concoction. And I haven't weighed out the exact numbers yet to kind of get the calories, but it'd be some concoction of oatmeal, powdered milk, desiccated coconut, a protein powder, macadamia nuts, Key, the key. So anhydrous milk fat for the, 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 the fats raise and raisins. 
And then my on the go food would be chocolate, nuts, lard. It's the highest fat meat I could find, um, cheese. And I even found like the highest fat cheese I could possibly find. And potentially like a keto brick kind of keto brick. I was like the company I was looking at, like some sort of keto bar. And that's what I was looking at, like a, just a bag of Ziplocs of all that stuff kind of mixed in there is what I'm looking at. And then for breakfast, I haven't nailed that down yet, but yeah, what do you, I mean, what, cause I thought I do, I do, should I put like, I was thinking for breakfast, should I eat maybe a bit of a protein bar or like a keto bar with some lard, you know, get a fat and protein kind of concoction. What are your, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, my bias is I, I kind of agree with Zach on that, that I, I think from a logistics standpoint, right. When you're done for the day, having to boil water, having to make more food is probably going to be easier. Again, that you would know more on that than I would. Um, saves time in the morning. Most yeah. people, if they're doing that, they usually feel better just starting out with more protein and fat in the morning, trying to stay more on that ketogenic type side. And then if you do have more carbohydrates in the evening, you know, potentially you can use that to refill glycogen a little bit more. You kind of ran mm -hmm. on fat most of the day. And then plus, like Zach was saying too, if some people just get sleepy with that amount of carbohydrates and that's perfect for at night <laughs> who cares yeah. like you're gonna go to sleep exactly right so yeah. i've used that also with some clients as um just to use it to their advantage and then for some people it's just something also mentally to look forward to right it's like oh wow i actually get hot food i'm not gonna break my tooth off on some frozen <laughs> piece of god knows what <laughs> you know again yeah. and it, you know sometimes for them to have that in the evening knowing they don't have to be motivated to do anything after that. And they can just go to bed, like just from a, a psychology mental side, that's also preferential for a lot of people too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The other thing I was thinking to kind of add to the number of like things to consider with the timing of it would be like, like you said, Akshay, the, if you can get up in the morning and not have to mess around with boiling snow to get water and things like that and save yourself, however long that takes, yeah. Uh, and my suspicion is you're going to have like, you're going to have a, some scenarios where like, once this thing starts, you're going to be so hyper-focused on the task at hand that when you wake up in the morning, you're going to be like almost a little anxious and that's going to kind of like pre-race anxiety almost. And you, so you're going to, you're going to be incentivized to kind of get going and start the day because once you start today, you start yeah. making progress and that's just a good kind of peace of mind type of tactic. Yeah. I wonder though, like it, given like how big of a day this is, there's probably going to be like a wind down period from when you finish to when you're actually able to feel restful enough to fall asleep. So that kind of what I, the way I'm looking at it is like, that's the window of time where you're actually going to have to kill two birds with one stone. You can use that time to do the more time sensitive cooking processes and also allow your body to kind of like downregulate a little bit so that you are like feeling ready to go to bed when you actually do hit the pillow, assuming you have one a pile of snow, maybe <laughs> just gonna put a plastic bag and a pile of snow and yeah. uh, blow air into it. Yeah. <laughs> so, so then you can maybe, it, it might just become almost like, like Dr. Mike said, it might almost become like, like ritualistic to a point where like, you kind of look forward to that, like 45 to 60 minutes at the end of the day where you're like, this is my one break in this massive project where my movement is minimized. My mind can kind of relax and I can just almost like get a meditative experience with the cooking process or something like that. And, yeah. and, uh, yeah. So then if that means that's the spot where you're going to have the, the majority of your carbohydrates, I think the it's a, it's a good spot for some of the things you said. One, let's say it bumps you out of ketosis. Who cares? You're going to 
you're going to get right back into it by the time you wake up in the morning and start moving. So especially if you're not hitting carbohydrates for breakfast, so you're going to leverage an overnight fast. That's going to move up your fat oxidation. And then you're having protein and fat for breakfast. It sounds like you're having a fair bit of medium chain triglycerides, which may, may help with that a little bit in terms of the speed. Uh, and then I think you're, you're burning pretty high rates of fat to start out that day and continually until, uh, you know, maybe the end of the day. And the, the other thing I thought of too, and this is just something that was mentioned to me when I was looking at planning transcon was that, uh, you may have some, some application for small amounts of carbohydrate in the second half of the actual moving part of the day too. Mm. Uh, just as a, you know, kind of similar to what Dr. Mike said, something to look forward to something a little different, you know, so you don't, don't feel like you're just eating the same thing over and over again. And the days don't blend quite as much together. Uh, and you know, it is a little bit more rocket fuel, like type of a sensation when you're, you know, not having it as often as you're going to be in. And, and that may give you like a little bit of a push to finish the day versus feeling like you're just kind of like, you know, just maintaining or, you know, it, it yeah. could be kind of like a, it could sort of like be like having a little bit of caffeine comparatively. If it, if it works out that way, that'd be something you definitely want to stress test, I think in training before right. counting on it, playing out that way. Cause I could be completely wrong about how that ends up behaving within the context of how you're going to prepare from a more strict ketogenic, uh, angle than what I would probably be doing preparing for say a single day ultra marathon. Yeah. I mean that, so even like with that, as I was planning this and kind of writing down the exact, uh, uh, you know, calories per hundred grams, protein, carbs, and fats for each of these foods that I was mentioning, it seemed like based on this food kind of profile that my primary carbs would be coming from oatmeal and the chocolates. So what I could do based on what you're saying, Zach, is I could kind of stack the chocolates at, let's say the bottom of my Ziploc bag. So I eat, so they come to the end of like on the second or the, the, the last third of the day, I get my carbs and the chocolates plus chocolates are just a morale booster. Like yeah. whenever we were in Antarctica, <laughs> I was digging through my bag for the chocolate. So especially at the, end of the, day, the chocolate just tastes really good. So there's that too. And also to answer your question, like to kind of address one of your points, you know, there's uh, the, the 10 time from the moment you stop to bed, that, that period is going to be about three hours uh but it's how long it takes to boil snow and so to your point like that will because i'll be refilling all my nalgenes for the day right so beyond boiling snow for the food and i also thought like that's why to do oatmeal for dinner although that's obviously traditionally considered a breakfast i can control my i can control the ratios a little bit more precisely there than if i were to let's say just have a freeze-dried food dinner which was what we traditionally had and then those are kind of up to so i mean like ultimately who says oatmeal has to be a, a breakfast right i know that's what we usually but i figured i could i could use it as as a dinner to get my carbs that way uh, and and structure my chocolates towards the end of the day does that make sense i mean was yeah and i think that allows you a little bit more flexibility too, right? Because you're going to know how much total oatmeal, let's say if we're just looking at oatmeal, right? You're going to know how much total oatmeal you have. Exactly. And you're like, man, I'm feeling just completely trashed today. Maybe I'm going to use a little bit more oatmeal at night, see if I feel better in the morning. Oh, okay. I feel better. Or maybe have an easier day. We're not doing as many climbs. You're like, oh, maybe I don't need as much, right? Because you're going to have an idea of how much you have for the total trip, which I think kind of allows you to yeah. be a little bit more auto-regulatory um, with it than just okay, I, ha I already opened this meal. So I've already kind of committed to this amount of food. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, so we, even with that said, though, do you like based on a 7000 calorie profile for the day? Do you have a thought on like how to structure X amount of calories out of, for breakfast, 
X amount in the, on the go and then X amount on dinners, any, you know, is it, does it, how, yeah, how should I structure that? I mean, my general thought is you not really looking at logistics and stuff is I would calculate backwards. So I would figure out like for the oatmeal and what you're going to have for dinner, about how much percentage of that would make it make up for that. Right. So it's just going to be a subtraction from your total amount. And then it's probably just playing with even logistics of, you know, eating on the go. How often do you like to eat? Do you feel better after you eat? You know, some people do better with like a bigger bolus of having, you know, two quote meals type during the day and feel good. Some people do better snacking on stuff a little bit. That could be mental. It could be physical. So I would say, yeah. and unfortunately on that, I've seen everyone do everything in, in between. So Roger that. I mean, what are your thoughts, Zach? Yeah, I think, uh, what y- y- this is where I think I would maybe stress test a little bit in some of the training. Yeah. I know you have an event before that too, where there, there, it's possible that certain foods or certain types of foods are going to feel differently in your stomach and how you're able to kind of behave with it. So I would take notes on kind of how that, that plays out. Um, you know, I would do, I would maybe even do some, if you're not looking to like put in or to only test this during some kind of massive training blocks or training sessions, what I've seen people do like for, I mean, this is, this is how it plays out in single day stuff or hundred mile stuff is you have this scenario where, yeah, I practice my race day fueling for a 30 mile, maybe 40 mile long run. But inevitably, a hundred miler, like, is that going to be the same at mile seventy, mile eighty, mile ninety? You really don't know, other than your prior experiences, yeah. as well as, um, as uh, you know, what what you're just you're trying to project forward from your your training. And one way I think you can maybe simulate this is kind of simulate what it's going to feel like to kind of have a packed gut or a little bit of a angry stomach before a session. So, like, maybe instead of doing a workout on like an empty stomach or a relatively empty stomach, eat a decent sized meal and go out and just try moving around and just see how that feels familiar, familiarize yourself with how that feels. Cause if it's just like a little bit of discomfort for you, but in terms of actual forward movement, it's not really impacting you in a negative way. I don't know, outside of just the, 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 the mental wear and tear that that could be, if you're doing that too often, uh, you could practice some stuff and then maybe narrow down a little bit to what Dr. Mike was saying, if you're better off kind of nibbling and sipping, or if you're better off kind of trying to hit a couple big meals, just so you're making sure you're staying on top of calories overall. Cause I mean, it's hard to eat 7,000 calories in a day. And yeah. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's even harder to do it when you're trying to move through freezing temperatures and pulling sure. a sled. So sure. I think that's the biggest thing to kind of test. Hey folks, just a quick reminder, this episode sponsors are optimal carnivores organ complex supplement and bioptimizers magnesium breakthrough supplement for details you can find links to those and discounts in the show notes as well as at zachbetter.com forward slash hpo sponsors uh i think this also kind of leads into another kind of question i had or an interest because i think i i have an idea of what i think would maybe be smart to do here but there's a the question i have is like 7,000 calories is a lot of food to eat and you have to digest that. You have to process that. And it's going to be something where I think your body may need a little bit of an adjustment period to be able to handle. So granted, it's hard to, you know, in most endurance contexts is like, it's really tough to be like, well, I'm just going to eat 7,000 calories a day for the three weeks leading in. So you end up at the starting line, you know, with 
probably a few extra pounds than what you were looking for. But in your situation, I think that's a win because you're going to be leaning so heavily on fat. It's more about logistic distribution of that fat. So like if you can carry, if you're carrying an extra, say eight pounds of body fat going into this event, given how low intensity it is, that might be a bit of a win so that not only do you have an onboard aid station, more or less, given your fueling choices, you also have it distributed from a good carrying way uh, or an ideal carrying way, but it may give you an opportunity to also practice eating more leading in because your focus will be to be gaining weight versus maintaining or losing. And then it also gives you maybe a bit of an on-wrap. Let's say the first few days, it's like digestively, it's pretty hard to get up to 7,000 calories. So you're hitting like five, six for the first few days. And then you finally kind of get a routine and get like an adjustment up to that 7,000. And you can lean a little bit on that reserve while you're kind of getting to that point. So you don't feel like if I don't hit 7,000 calories on day one going forward, it's going to be an absolute disaster in the back end. Yeah, that makes sense. Even on this year's trip, like we didn't eat. Uh, I mean, I think by day five, day six or day seven, we had so much food left over. It's like, just couldn't eat all the full day bags. We hadn't been as precise in rationing out the calories. But I remember like day 10 of the trip, I would like wake up at night just devouring slam- salami, cheese and chocolates. <laughs> I was so hungry at that point, you know, so that, that that totally makes sense. And actually, even like even then, in terms of putting on weight, so curious to, and your thoughts on this. So currently, I'm about 160 when I was in sort of ultra running shape, not that I've ever run ultras the way you have Zach, but I've, you know, done, done, like I've done some 24 hour runs and hundred miles and stuff like that. And, uh, I was like 130, 135. And now I'm consciously trying to keep my body in a state of like little bit of fat. So I'm getting used to doing endurance with fat on me, you know, 160 pounds is heavier than I've been when I was in running shape. And I'm consciously trying to hold on to fat and then put on more right before the the trip, because like even this year's trip, even 18 days out there, I lost a bunch, you know, 105 days, you're going to inevitably lose a bunch. So like, I mean, that, that's been at least my thought. Logically, it seemed to make sense to get my body and mind used to working with fat on me doing like long endurance things. But what do you think? Is that, I mean, does that just make sense to do that? And kind of, so my thought is for the next two years, essentially it's not good for my vanity, but that's okay. Uh, <laughs> just to kind of stay fat for the next two years, really at least to some degree and bulk up before a trip. Because after every one of these trips that I go on, I'll inevitably lose some, add more, and then, you know, go extra hard before the full crossing. Yeah. I mean, my bias is I, I a hundred percent agree with that. That's one of the little notes I had written down here because I mean, even let's say you get crazy and add 20 pounds, right? And I'm not saying that's the best idea, but you're, I think you said you're pulling like a 400 pound sled, right? So like what Zach said, relatively speaking, yeah, it's pretty small, right? Because you've got such a massive external load, you're pulling an addition. You know, if you were doing a short, you know, day event or something like that, that's, you know, that's completely different. But my guess is that you would rather end the trip being, Oh, I'm still a little bit overweight versus, oh my God, I'm emaciated and my hormones crash and I feel like shit and everything just tanked harder than it would be on top of doing the really hard thing anyway. Um, Because as you both know, like if you, if you get super lean, like everything just gets so dysregulated, right? Mm -hmm. Your body just hates you. Right. And And then sleep comes and the sleep gets massively disturbed. Like everything just goes in the shitter. So like if you can avoid that state with the unknown of, yeah, you don't really know exactly how many calories you're going to burn. You're going to do your best guess. You're going to do your best estimates. <clears throat> you know, maybe you have a few days where you just feel so nauseous. It's like eating food is hard, right? So I think having a few extra pounds is probably a good idea. Got it. Got it. 
And then even, and you kind of brought this up, Zach, like even in terms of training, like training with some weight on me, should I eat? Like, I mean, I don't know how you usually do your morning runs. Do you do fasted? And in my case, should I do it faster or should I do it as if I was in Antarctica, like eat some fats, eat some proteins, and then go out for the morning run and morning session? Uh, because that's what I would be doing in Antarctica or kind of do it fasted and eat after or both, you know, what yeah. do you think? Yeah. You know, usually the way I look at this is once you, like, usually the way I'm programming is once we get about two thirds, the way through a training plan, assuming the on-ramp is ideal. That's when we kind of hit this point where the long run has gotten to it. A, a single long run per week is kind of more or less built out. And then it's time to kind of shift focus to like, now I'm going to start pushing much more of my training load towards that versus what I was doing before. And that usually means the introduction of say a second long run for the week. And yeah. during that phase of the training part, I'm looking at it kind of sort of through two lenses. One is where is my, like what I like to call it a fat adaptation field test where it's like, I'm going to go out for a long run and just do water and electrolytes. If I can do like three, four five hour long run, feel pretty even consistency with water and electrolytes. I've pulled that fat adaptation lever plenty far. Like I'm not worried about like having high enough fat oxidation rates at any point at that time anymore. Now I'm worried about what am I going to do on race day and how do I practice it? So then I start introducing, trying to replicate long runs to be as close to what I will do on race day as possible. So for you, that may look a little different than me, but I think like, yeah, you're going to want to, since you're going to be waking up and eating in the morning and then starting on the event itself, I think when you start getting to kind of like the prime time in that long run development or the longer session development of your, your protocol training protocol, that would be time to really stress test what you plan on doing uh, day of out there. Check. Got you. Got you. Okay. Got it. Yeah. And that's similar I'll... how I think too. Like I think of you have an adaptation phase and you have a simulation phase, right? Mm -hmm. Your adaptation phase is, can I get my use of fat as high as possible? So things like fasted runs, low, you know, low insulin conditions is going to push you more <clears throat> to use fat. Can I get that fatty acid oxidation to those, those systems upregulated as high as possible? Cool. Once I get to that point, I like Zach's thing of, you know, longer run with just water and electrolytes. Cool. That's all good. Now I'm probably going to shift more into a simulation phase because that adaptation is probably near its max. So now I want to kind of replicate what are the actual live conditions that I'm going to be in. How is my digestion? How much food can I eat? You know, so that way you've got kind of both of them uh, ready to go. Yeah, that makes sense. And then I can replicate even like on the longer days, how I would do it in Antarctica in terms of what I'm eating, my break sessions and things like that. And even with that, like you brought this up earlier, Zach, like in terms of medium chain tri uh, triglycerides versus the long chain, you know, how to structure that in my day food. So I was thinking about, like I was mentioning incorporating ghee in my oatmeal dinners, but potentially mixing like MCT oil in a bar for the day. Uh, Cause oils are obviously easy way to get a lot of fats. Any thoughts on how to structure that? Can you say the last part of that again? Just in terms of like structuring how to get and how much of the, like the, the medium chain versus long chain fats and because I've been told, I think a friend was telling me like, it's, it's important to get kind of a bit of both. So whether, okay. So I was thinking, okay, I'll put my keys pre-mixed in the oatmeal concoction, uh, for my dinners and then potentially mixing maybe MCT oil into like the protein or the keto bar that I, that I use, uh, it, you know, pre-mixing it in there for my on the go foods, or again, if there's a better way to do that, uh, 
in terms of structuring the, the ghee versus MCT oils. Those are at least the two primary oil sources and fat source that I'm thinking of. But again, I don't know if there's a better one that you or Dr. Mike can, you know, have, have, have a thought on. Yeah, I think, like, I mean, I think medium chain triglycerides are going to probably be a good target for something like this. I mean, Dr. Mike can probably speak more to the science around this than I can, but it's like, you know, my understanding is that's just going to be a little faster in terms of pushing your fat up, your, your fat metabolism, your, your fat burning rates up. So like, uh, that sort of thing, I think the biggest question is just how do you personally tolerate it? And that may be a combination Mm -hmm. of just generally speaking, as well as, uh, just as well as like how often you include it in your diet leading in, like the biggest fear I have with this type of stuff is like, if race day nutrition deviates from what you've been able to do before, uh, in a big enough way, you're just rolling the dice with how your body's going to process and digest that. So I think the more consistency you have with what you're eating and say like the eight to 10 weeks leading into the event itself with what you'll be eating on the event itself is going to be the biggest step forward more so than any, like maybe small, relatively small differences between like a medium chain triglyceride and, you know, a different source of fat. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, obviously, whatever you're, the body is pretty amazing at adapting to kind of whatever you're doing. Like Zach was saying, if you've got a lead in period of eight, 10, 12 weeks, it gives you a pretty good idea to test things out. And then that point, if things are not working as well, then you can kind of get down in the weeds and look at, you know, if you're using a C8 type oil, medium chain triglyceride versus a mixed or, you know, C10 ish. C8 tends to not have the disaster pants and kind of the digestive (laughs) issues associated with it. It might be a little bit more ketogenic. The research on that's a little bit debatable. Um, So if you find that during that simulation phase, you're just like, oh my God, this is horrible. Then, you know, look at uh, MCTs, maybe try going to a pure C8 and see if that resolves some of the issues, right? So it gives you kind of a, a period to tweak a little bit and get your body kind of used to it. I mean, I've seen some people use, you know, high amounts of mixed, you know, MCTs and are perfectly fine. I've seen the exact other person use that amount and they're, they're running to the bathroom doing the Wilford Brimley two-step for most of the day. So <laughs> it's, it's kind of individual at that point too. <laughs> I'll do some, I'll do some, yeah, exper- as soon as I'm back stateside, I'll start experimenting with all of this stuff as well. And even like, even then, like I actually, so just a week ago, Jack, I spoke with, with Frank from ketone aid also thinking about that, like, what are your thoughts on ketone esters and ketone salts and how to incorporate that if at all into this mm-hmm. game plan? Yeah, that's a good question. I know as, unless there's something new that I'm unaware of that's come out in the last few months, my understanding is that from a performance standpoint, we don't have any real good reason to believe that exogenous ketones are probably going to be something that is going to move the needle forward for that, where mm-hmm. there's possibly some application. I think the research is, I mean, there's just not a lot of it yet, but there is some indication that it can be useful for recovery. So mm-hmm. if you were to say, I think the big question for you is how easy or hard is it going to be, or at what exchange does bringing that stuff along cost you? Can you kill two birds with one stone and have a product that is say like, a protein powder with exogenous ketones in it versus just a regular protein powder, because where I would be maybe suspicious about even if you, let's say we found out like, Oh yeah, it's going to help your recovery a little bit. Is that enough to be worth considering adding that to your weight or adding that 
and yeah. and then how much does it weigh? I know some of these more recent ketone esters are liquid based. So now you're talking about packing along, um, you know, a lot more weight versus something yeah. that you could get that would be in powder form, which you can get in powder form, I suppose. But uh, that would be the way I would look at that. Got it. Yeah. I mean, I would agree with that too. I mean, in terms of all out performance, I haven't really seen any study that shows ketone esters are more beneficial, even like for speed and power stuff. Um, kind of like what Zach was saying, there's some data, though it's very early, like Brandon Egan has done some, Don D'Agostino has done some, looking at cognitive function at the end of kind of high exhaustive exercise. So you may play around with that because some athletes will respond better to just the cognitive aspects under high levels of fatigue mm -hmm. with ketones. And so that might be a way of like, oh man, like I'm just trashed at, you know, like two in the afternoon. I still got multiple hours ago. I've eaten all my food. I've done all the things I've normally done. You know, maybe some exogenous ketones at that point might be enough to kind of, you know, bump you through the end of, end of the day. Um, mixing like a C8 oil with like a, a salt is beneficial, like a ketone salt. You can get a little bit higher levels of ketones in the blood. I'm um, usually using something called a quad salt where they split out the ketones over the different ions. Digestive wise is usually going to be a little bit better, right? So you're not just having this massive sodium dump into your system, which your GI system can react to. And mm -hmm. then the esters themselves, I think the main benefit of them is they're just, I've just seen they're a little bit more reliable and they can get your ketone levels quite a bit higher. Um, we've done some stuff with the Kerrigan Institute uh, looking at just giving people the esters and doing performance and stuff. I mean, we had people routinely hitting three, four millimolar within 20 minutes. Um, so I th that's an advantage, but again, for what you're doing, eh, I don't know if you really need to be that high, right? You know, if you're already have a lot of ketones, I don't, I don't know if the esters in and of themselves would be an advantage. And like Zach was saying too, for the weight and most of them that I know of are liquid. Um, I know they're supposed to taste better now, but all the ones I've tried so far, I'm sure the ketone companies are going to kill me, but they all taste like ass. <laughs> so that's probably, yeah. right, right. You're probably not interested in eating the same foods every day and to try to drink one of those nasty things is probably not going to be real high on your list. Right. Yeah. Compliance is, is always something. Yeah. Um, there's some data on recovery. You know, you could be critical of the recovery studies and say that if they would have just provided more calories, it might've been beneficial. Um, so, but yeah, I think they could be used for that too. And I think I would be looking more on the, like kind of the cognitive side too. If you're, you know, it's at the end of the day and you've eaten all your oatmeal and you've kind of maxed that out and you just feel kind of weirdly twitchy enough, then, you know, maybe ketones are something that could, could help you kind of smooth that out a little bit and, and sleep better for recovery. Again, everybody responds to them a, a little bit different, but I think kind of the, the cognitive aspect of it, I think would be the most interesting part. It might be useful there. Got you. I guess logistically too, they're more challenging considering what I'm doing. So, but I mean, to your right. point, I could, I could theoretically mix ketone salts into, let's say a protein powder. Would that be like the good thing to have at the end of the day? Cause that would obviously be logistically easier to have a ketone salt that I just pre-mix into the concoction either 
um, either into like a dinner concoction or I'm actually, which actually brings up another question too. Like I'm co I'm working with a, with a friend who's a supplement formula guy and we're co-creating a one, like one of the meals, it will be sort of a drinking meal where, where, where I'll drink, you know, one Nalgene for the, in the day, cause usually I have three Nalgenes. So I'll have one will be this concoction we're making right. Like during the day. And then one at the end of the day, when I first get into my tent to kind of get some immediate calories while the snow is boiling and stuff like that for my dinners. Um, but in that we were thinking about, okay, like, what do we put like BCAAs? Theoretically, I could put some uh, ketone salts in there, you know, B12, D3s, omega-3s, folate, some things like that. And, and he's got a whole list of micronutrients that he was thinking about adding in there. But any thoughts on like micronutrients and then also when to put the ketone salts, would it be end of the day be the best time in terms of some of the things you're saying for like cognitive function, as well as recovery to kind of get back in the fight stronger the next day? I mean, my bias is I think the end of the day might be beneficial, but mm -hmm. you could maybe have another bottle that just has uh, the ketone salts already pre-mixed in it, potentially. Um, that might be a, a way to have something a little bit different, see how you you feel with it. Again, that may not be worth the the trade-off for the extra logistics hassle and everything that, that goes with it. I think it's something you'd have to play around with in some simulation training and see how that goes. Um, in terms of other things to add, I mean, obviously electrolytes are going to be number one, which you're probably going to have a separate amount for. Other than that, I think D3 essential fatty acids are probably going to be good because most of your fat sources are probably going to be low in essential fatty acids. Granted, mm -hmm. you can store a fair amount of essential fatty acids in your tissue and stuff too. So it's not like if you miss a couple of days, you have to be super worried or anything like that. Um, yeah. And then usual stuff, you know, B vitamins, you know, zinc, all that kind of stuff. That's yeah, kind of yeah. what I would be thinking about off the top of my head. I have, I'm not super convinced that there's other, any sort of magical nutrients that really help a ton with, with fatty acid oxidation. There's super mixed data on things like, you know, L-carnitine and other stuff, but yeah, I'm not, I'm not hundred percent sold on the data yet that it's worth adding so many other things that you may have a weird reaction to. And then you're like, Oh, well, this mix is screwed, <laughs> you know, because you, yeah. you try to get a little too fancy and add everything to it. I got you. What are I your thoughts, you. Zach? Yeah, I think, I mean, with this stuff, I think anytime you can kill two birds with one stone, you're probably going to be winning, assuming it doesn't like negatively impact your digestion and stuff like that. So uh, I want to say like, I think, yeah, electrolytes are going to be something that would be a focus, especially can considering the dietary pattern you're doing, I think yep. that, that, and just, uh, so, so here, here's another way to look at it. Like that may be a nod towards some sort of ketone in your, uh, in your protein powder or something like, cause that will probably bring on a fair bit of electrolytes along for the ride, uh, that you wouldn't necessarily be counting on, but they could add that to the list of, uh, or to the quantity that you're trying to target. And, uh, then it would be just like kind of balancing that out with enough water. So like, that was going to be kind of my question for you, because I know you have to essentially melt snow to get any restock in water. Yeah. Are, do you have any sort of process where you're able to keep some of that unfrozen? Cause my assumption would be like, minus like a really great container. You're going to press probably going to refreeze fairly quick out there. So yeah, like we, this, this trip, we were carrying two and a half liters of water a day in a insulated Nalgene and then one in a, in a flask. So that stays, uh, that stayed pretty, uh, I mean, you, you know, you put it in when it's hot, 
And so it, it stays it, 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 by the end of the day, it's, it's a little cooler, but it's still, it's still not frozen, right? Mm-hmm. You drink the insulated Nalgene's first, but I would, I would use like for this year's trip, I mean, for, for the crossing as well as this year's trip, because this year's trip in many ways is a training trip for, I mean, 40 to 50 days out there in, in and of itself is not nothing. It's quite a decent trip <laughs> in and of itself. I'll actually, it'll be actually a first in a, in a few ways, even this trip, but in many ways, it's also just a practice run for me to experiment with the systems to put in um, the, the, for the full crossing. So my plan is to, to carry about three and a half liters in the, on the go, uh, three to three and a half liters for the, for the skiing shifts. And as far as the skiing shifts, just to, you know, share like the, the, the kind of the game plan is, the and I'm going to experiment with this because usually I've done one hour skiing shifts with a 10 minute break, but I'm going to need to like be moving a lot to cover the kind of distances I need to cover. So my plan is to do two hours the first shift and then 90 minute shifts. And I forget the exact math. I think it was like five shifts that works out to or something like that. And then and then the last shift will be about an hour and that will get me about a 12 hour day. If I remember correctly, I did the math on it, but I can't remember off the top of my head, but in those shifts is when I drink a bit of water, eat a bit of food. And then I do leave a little bit of water. Always. You need a little bit of water to put at the pot when you're boiling the snow as always the snow will kind of get all, it'll like burn the, burn the pot. So does that, does that answer your question in terms of like, yeah, I'm using now Jesus flask and, and a flask to keep that water uh, from freezing. And then I put it in my sleeping bag at night. So it doesn't freeze. Otherwise it'll freeze outside the bag. I was just glad you didn't say I'm going like one part vodka, one part water. And that, <laughs> <laughs> freeze. that might feel good for the first couple of days. Exactly. I don't know about day 100. <laughs> uh, yeah. Okay. So that's, yeah, that was my, so that's kind of what I was, I was thinking like, I mean, you're eating a lot of calories, so there's going to be some electrolytes and a lot of micronutrients that are going to kind of come along with just the excess amount of calories you'll have. So the way I sometimes look at this is like when I'm like in off season, sometimes that's when I'm more like in tune with how many micronutrients I'm getting, because I might only be eating a couple thousand calories that day versus when I'm in full-blown training, eating four or 5,000 calories in a day. Sometimes it's like, you're just eating so much volume of food that there's, you're going to, as long as you're eating like relatively nutrient dense food, you're probably going to hit your, your recommendations uh, because of just that, that extra intake, but, uh, for you, you all are probably leaning into some more calorie dense and by nature, how dense they are calorically, they're not as nutrient dense from a micronutrient standpoint, perhaps in some cases, but, uh, so I'm kind of backtracking a little bit here, but, uh, to that micronutrient question, but this would maybe be like possibly an advantage of just having like, like a baggie with, a hundred multivitamins in it, which would be relatively light that you could just have at the end of the day with, uh, with whatever your last meal is. And it's probably more of a safety blanket than an absolute necessity, but, um, yeah, it might be worth considering depending on how much it weighs and how logistically challenging it is. It, that, that makes sense. Yeah. I was thinking about like this year's trip, I did carry some multivitamins. I was either thinking about carrying some or incorporating into this, this, this formula mix that we're making, because yeah, I mean, all the stuff I'm eating is like chocolates and lard and there's not, you know, so they don't, it's not like healthy food, <laughs> but it's necessary. So at least getting some of the healthy micronutrients of these other, other means. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then from volume, like micronutrients, like magnesium is probably going to be one of the bigger, like just looking at sheer volume again, it's not super high, but you know, some people respond a little bit better with that in the evening to help them relax too. Got you. Yeah. I can, I can try to stack that. Like, that's a good, that's that, like, whether it be the multivitamin or the drink, I could have that when I first enter the tent, 
And uh, as I'm kind of settling into the relaxing part of the day, that makes relaxing. Sense. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's nothing about this that sounds relaxing. No. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, today you're you're not mom. moving, but it's 40 below windshield outside. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's absurdly cold. You're a sitting thin, there alone. A thin <laughs> layer of fabric between you and 40 below zero. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Those winds are are savage, that's for sure. <laughs> Yeah, I think it's uh, the other thing I was thinking with electrolytes too. like assuming like and this is just something you probably will have like a spreadsheet or something where you're running a lot of your stuff through and just taking a quick glance at like where there the deficiencies are where like the the holes are in your, your kind of current plan. But um, some of that stuff too, it's just like the way you would maybe bring in and uh, you, I mean, putting salt and things on stuff seems to be like a fairly easy move. And again, not going to be a very weight sensitive uh thing to add in a quite a bit of bang for your buck. So, you know, whether that's just, you know, blending in some salt with your dried oats or whatever it is you can, can get away with doing would maybe be something that'd be worth, uh, worth looking at. Okay. Got you. Cause yeah, I guess a lot of the other stuff I'm getting is a lot of sweets with the chocolates and all that. So yeah, blending in some salts, I can do that into the uh, oatmeal. One of my friends was also suggesting potentially like cinnamon or turmeric. Hmm. Is that, uh, yeah, I don't know. Like what I know, like turmeric has had some, maybe some research behind it for, as like an anti-inflammatory, but it's, I think, I believe that's more like a little bit out there yet. Yeah, I don't know if Dr. Mike, if you know about that, if that'd be, it seems to me like that'd be something that'd be more trouble than it would be beneficial. Cause it's a lot of like speculatory and possibly completely debunked. Yeah, th- there's some okay research on it. The hard part with turmeric itself and curcumin is that the bioavailability is really low. So you've got to do other things like mixing it in a capsule with, you know, coconut oil or, you know, putting it in the phytosome or doing other things to increase the absorptivity of it. Um, but for some people, it does seem to help a fair amount. Again, that would be, I don't know if just putting raw turmeric on your oatmeal at night, would you get enough for the bang versus buck? and I tried that once. I personally didn't like the taste and I forgot how much of a mess like dried turmeric is. It's a disaster. (laughs) Don't let anything break on your, in your travel bag. (laughs) Right. That's what I would be worried about. (laughs) It's like, why is he orange? (laughs) Everything's orange. (laughs) Roger that. Okay. That makes sense. That makes sense. Now, even as I'm planning all this, you know, we've been talking about like the training and stuff like, cause I'll be doing multiple little, little trips. Like I'm doing a little trip to Iceland here and there. I'm doing a 10 day darkness retreat in Mexico in, uh, in May. And, and so I guess the, like what I'm thinking is like, if I break, let's say I start keto when I go back to the U S right end of the month, April, I start to start experimenting with all these things we're kind of talking about. And then if I break, is that a problem, you know, or because I'm traveling and, and then like break the, sp- the specific kind of game plan and then come back to it, you know, cause I have like, yeah, I have the, a darkness retreat, Galapagos trip and an Iceland trip, uh, planned before Patagonia and Antarctica. So it's going to be a fun year, uh, <laughs> an intense year, but yeah, I mean, is that a problem if I break the, the, the ritual, like the, the, the keto thing or, and how long should I be on it before I set foot in Antarctica? Does that make sense? Yeah. Can you remind me how long you've played around with even low carb diets before this? Have you, you've been Not- using it? 
No, no, no. Okay. Really at all, because okay. all, all previous expeditions, we uh, we've been doing what sort of the standard polar stuff is like oatmeal,s and and we haven't been as ruthless and haven't needed to because you know you're not as concerned about the weight and all the even this year's trip I, I, extra weight for me was like sweet, bring it. I'll just you know I'll just use I'll, more training because I'll <laughs> for what's coming kind of thing. So uh, I haven't gone too deep into uh, uh, that and dabbled in keto really ever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is probably Dr. Mike's wheelhouse, but I, my thought would be like, you would want to be just generally metabolically flexible, which would just maybe be trying to maintain like a low carb diet, but maybe not nearly as strict as a strict ketogenic diet. So then when you do get to a point where like, all right, now I'm in my kind of final push before the start, then pull that lever the rest of the way to like a strict ketogenic diet versus just like maybe, maybe you're doing low carb at a 20 to 25% carbohydrate intake, uh, during those, those trips where it's just a lot, it's, you know, I mean, you probably don't even have necessarily control over what you're eating every day on those, I'm guessing. So you kind of have to take what you get, but you know, I look at it kind of the same way as I would just like a stand, you know, most people who aren't thinking about this and they're just eating what's in front of them are going to probably be like 60, 70% carbohydrate in most cases. So if you give it any thought, you might be able to just flip that on its head and be like 60%, 50 to 60% fat, 20 to 30% carbohydrate and the rest protein on these trips. And if you think of it on like a spectrum versus like an all or nothing, you're going to drive higher fat oxidation rates by even going from 60 to 70% carbohydrate down to 20 to 30%. Then it's just like, you're not, you're maybe not making that massive transition from mod high carb to strict keto in the final preparation period, but you're moving from low carb to strict keto. And from my experience, you know, I mean, I've been doing this for 11 years now. So I, my guess is like, I, I I can maybe switch, flip that switch a little quicker. If I say like, Oh, it's off season. I'm going to go strict keto for a few weeks. Um, I don't really notice anything because I've removed any like glycolytic activity for the most part during off season. I'm just basically recovering and moving around very slowly at, at best. And, uh, you know, like you may notice that, uh, um, that it's a lot less of a, you know, a transition period, but again, this can be very individual too. I, I talk to people every day who is just like pulling teeth, getting them to like feel good, uh, sometimes to the point where we just abandon that approach altogether and go with another approach that maybe is going to be more seamless for their, their individual, uh, their individual needs. But yeah. Um, yeah, that's, that's kind of my, uh, my spitballing Dr. Mike, what do you think? Yeah. I mean, I would agree with that. I mean, I think it's a good chance to play around with metabolic flexibility, right? How well can you use carbohydrates on one end? How well can you downregulate to use fat on the other end? Like Zach was saying too, just generally going a little bit lower carbohydrate and see how you feel, I think is still going to be moving you in the right direction, keeping protein, maybe a little bit higher than what you normally would. And then just see how you feel and use it as almost kind of a experiment transition, because one, you're not going to have hundred percent control over it anyway. Two, you don't want to make those trips utterly miserable. And three, yeah. you've got plenty of time on the other end too. So it's not like you're going to have to drop into something really hardcore and then off you go right away. So I think you have plenty yeah. of time to play around with it. So using it as kind of a transition to just, you know, just be a little bit more conscious, you know, try to have fewer, less carbohydrates, more protein, even right, probably yeah. not going to hit ketogenic and then just see how you feel. Like you may realize like, oh man, like if I really drop my carbs, I feel like dog shit. So I'm going to, you know, go up a little bit more the next day. Oh, okay. I feel better here. 
yeah, a few mm. days later, maybe I'll try to go down again. Oh, okay. Yeah. No, I feel not too bad. Okay, that's good. Right. So I think you've got room to kind of play around with it a little bit and, and yeah. see how you feel and, you know, enjoy kind of as a nice sort of, I guess you could say mental break too. Yeah. Roger that. <laughs> I was thinking about for the darkness retreat that I'm doing in May, I was thinking about doing a 10 day juice fast the whole time, but it's only a temporary thing. So I'm assuming that's not going to be a problem. Right. I mean, what is the festival? You said it's a dark. So it's, it's called the darkness retreat where I go hmm. into 10 days of complete darkness, silence and isolation. Whoa. Sitting so in that's just a- how you're able to do these big projects. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've done a darkness retreat before. A few years ago, I did a seven-day darkness retreat where you're literally in a dark room. You cannot see your hand in front of you. You're it's pitch darkness, complete silence, and pure isolation for seven full days, 24 hours Ooh. a day. It's intense. You go, you experience these like cool experiences. And I went in there to kind of process some of my demons. Quick backstory. I was in the Marines. I struggled after mm. the war uh, with drinking, with addiction, with PTSD. And I wanted to kind of navigate some of my demons. So last time I went in there as a kind of healing myself, this time it's more to like essentially as training for the solitude. I mean, I'm 105 days. Yeah. I'll be the mm-hmm. isolated human being on the entire planet. Like in terms oh. of physically away from another human being, I'll be the most yeah. isolated being alive. Right. So this is to master, to continue sort of my spiritual evolution, obviously the mental and spiritual side of the training. So for this, just to sprinkle a bit more suffering into the already intense 10 days of darkness, my thought was why not do a juice fast? <laughs> uh, and I, I, just, I just feel so lame for ever dropping out of a race right now. <laughs> Not at all. It's like I shouldn't have any DNFs. There's no way I should have any DNFs. <laughs> I can't even compare to what you've done, man. <laughs> but I appreciate uh, you saying. It's just one of those. I mean, I, this is what I love the this type of topic because it's like, you know, you think you're doing something extreme and then there's someone out there doing what yeah. you're doing. And, and it, I mean, it's apples and oranges to a degree, but it's also just, uh, it's a, kind of a different mindset even even though yeah, like, it's even beast going into that mm-hmm. darkness you literally start seeing like lights because your brain starts to release dmt so you start seeing these light like for example hmm. the brightest white light i've ever seen in my entire life i mean blindingly bright i was literally touching my eyelids like this i was covering my eyes sitting in a dark room for five days blinding white light it was wow. it was wild so now i'm going back for 10 to kind of go a little deeper and see what yeah. A week wasn't enough, right? <laughs> because the most intense experiences happen on day five and day six. So mm-hmm. this time I want to see when you're in day seven, day eight, day nine, where it's going to go, you know? Mm-hmm. And I mean, obviously it's intense. You're literally sitting in the dark room with nothing to do, right? Yeah. <laughs> and just to be with your, be with yourself. So it pushes you into some interesting places into the, into the soul. Yeah. What is your, imagine. your perception of time must just completely... <sighs> Weird. dissolve at a certain point because I'm, I'm guessing you're not staring at a clock either right it's completely dark yeah so. you you have no like in when i the, when i did the last one i was edited in germany this one i'll be doing in mexico i didn't have a sense of hours but i had a sense of days because every morning i could hear the birds chirping oh, so cool. it wasn't so that was that was how i knew the the day but then like it's a morning time but other than that you have no sense of hours so sometimes you're sitting there and you're meditating into like a red light in front of you for god knows how long right uh and and with no no sense of of time in and through these sessions so it's pretty wild i mean like i mean but like i mean i got a lot from the darkness i was actually journaling in the dark too so hmm. i was i had a journal and the stuff that came through was really 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 profound uh but like the most powerful part of it was when i came back into the light after seven days and the way the world looked in that moment it was it's hard to describe like the like i remember thinking two thoughts one i wish i could see the world every day through these eyes because mm. it i've never seen the light look that way in my entire life and the other thought was this kind of deep sense of 
gratitude, not just like a, an ex, a surface level gratitude, like a visceral gratitude for every bit of pain and suffering I'd gone through in my life, because it really hit me in such a visceral way that you can only really understand and know the light after you've been in the dark, you know? Mm-hmm. And I'm sure as an ultra runner, you can relate to that too. Obviously you enter the pain cave, right? <laughs> and there's, there's value in going to those spaces. Yeah. It's, I mean, you have a whole nother level of perspective here than I do, but it's, uh, <laughs> it is interesting. Like the, you put yourself in these uncomfortable situations or these foreign situations, and then you return to what was considered kind of normal. And you start to recognize a lot of things that you were just kind of having operate in the background. Like I just assume it's going to be light during the day, or I just assume when I flip a switch, the light's going to come on, I'm going to be able to see, but like, yeah, when you don't have that for, you know, an extended period of time, or you're putting yourself through a rigorous physical task that's all day or multiple days or whatever, you know, you get like, I mean, the, the, the one that's always kind of uh, reminds me of this is like, you'll finish a race and you're just disgusting. You're, you know, salty skin, dirty, like you're tired and you just take that shower and it just feels so good to be clean. And it's like, yeah. I never thought it would feel this good to be clean. Yeah. <laughs> and I can imagine for you, it's like that times, you know, well, essentially a hundred because I've done single day stuff <laughs> and you're doing a hundred day project. <laughs> and even after coming back from Greenland for a month or even this year's trip, we were coming back after shower after 20 days. I mean, whew, that hot shower feels yeah. weird. You probably smell horrible to anybody around you back in base camp. Uh, but when you take that hot shower, and that's a big reason why is like the playing on the edges, right? The contrast is what gives life its flavor. And only by going into the other edge, do you, can you really appreciate the other one, you know? So it's, it's a big draw to these experiences and going finding in, in multiple ways, like darkness is, is darkness and hunger is a different dynamic than the physical pursuit. Right. But they all ultimately are ways to confront the mind and the spirit in a unique, unique way and see where it will take you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did you have any other questions that? Yeah, sorry. I totally, no, we totally got sidetracked. No, no, there. It's worth oh, it. that was <laughs> awesome. Yeah. yeah, that was a good sidetrack. <laughs> For sure. It, 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 I mean, it sheds light on to how, like, I always think about, like, and I talked to a ton of people about these multi-day stuff last year, and it was just interesting to hear, like, the different things that, sort of, I think, put them in a position to be mentally ready for something like that. And it sounds like you're kind of the same, you know, you've had a lot of situations in your life, whether they were intended or not, that kind of give you that little bit of extra edge that, you know, the rest of us maybe have the lack of experience with. So um, yeah. Any other questions that... Uh, you know, I, I can't like, is there anything y'all, I can't think of anything off the top of my head other than we'll be covered. Is there anything y'all have based on what I've shared and what I'm up to that maybe I didn't think of to ask? Um, I mean, I just had a note. I mean, if you want to go down in the weeds again, possibly using essential amino acids versus branch chains, maybe better. You're probably getting okay. enough protein. So again, it's probably not going to be much of a concern. My thought there would be that if protein for some reason, you just don't feel hungry for it and you're kind of avoiding it, you know, having some essential amino acids can help with that. Again, you have to look at cost formulation, taste, the new ones taste pretty good, but I've gotten just raw essential amino acids the first time, God, probably five years ago. And I opened the container and I'm like, these smell like cat piss. <laughs> so depending on how they're formulated it makes a big difference because and you may have taste fatigue too, right? Which you've probably already run into. Like I'm sure Zach deals with this too, is that at some point, you know, you should consume calories from whatever. And your brain is just like, I know I need them, but the taste of, you know, whatever it is, is just 
I did, I was a volunteer for the race across America years ago. And one uh, of the guys we had brought, I won't say the name of the company. And I showed him this container, like on day four, I'm like, do you want more of this? And he looked like he was going to vomit. He's like, if you get near me with that, he's like, I'm going to throw up all over you. <laughs> he was just so sick of the flavor. And it wasn't that it was a bad product. He was just, you know, he'd been consuming that like ad nauseum for like three and a half yeah. days already. Um, and the other thing I had too, is just, you know, GI issues, <laughs> potentially <laughs> making Maybe sure your yeah. stomach and GI and all that stuff is up to task and sort of prepared for what you're doing, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll test, I'll test it. Like I was telling Zach when we spoke that I'll test it at about 35 to 4,000 calories, 3,500 to 4,000 calories a day in the normal world uh, before I go, like as soon as I get back in the States, the same ratio, so 77% fat, but less if I eat 7,000 calories that probably go to Antarctica a whale, but, uh, <laughs> but at least 3,500 to 4,000. The one good thing about in terms of at least taste fatigue is that's uh, spending seven months in Iraq with the Marines and six years in the Marines. It there helps you confirm, like you, you stop like one thing that I've gotten used to is like the lack of taste fatigue. You just like eating those MREs and eating the shit all the time. You just, you get pretty comfortable. So that was among many blessings from being in the Marine Corps. But one was for sure that like, I'm pretty good at these days. As long as it tastes good. Like there was one freeze dried meal that I can't remember which flavor it was. I just couldn't handle it in Antarctica, but if it tastes good, I can have at least, at least, I mean, good is again, relatively relative. That's why like, <laughs> like even my oatmeal concoction, I can just pound in sugar. I'm okay. Having like that every day. So in that sense, uh, grateful to the core for that, <laughs> for, for hammering that taste fatigue out of me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that'll do it. <laughs> well, one yeah, other exactly. thing that like kind of crossed my mind that I'm not sure if this would be like something that would possibly just be a bad idea in general. But uh, I mean, I'm just thinking like the average person probably has diarrhea once every hundred days anyway. So it's like, even without like the whole like dietary thing, it's like, that's just a potential risk factor that could happen um, for whatever reason. And uh, would you, would it be smart to have just like a couple like Imodium tablets along with you in case I will like you- be. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I will be because that's not good. And not just, for, not just for the obvious reasons of energy draining, but pooping in Antarctica is never a fun experience. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. Frost, <laughs> frostbite. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So yeah, I will carry some like a little first, a tiny bit first cake kit. So that makes sense. But I appreciate the, yeah, the reinforcement of that. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. Yeah, no, I think we, covered some cool stuff here and hopefully we're yeah, cool. helping you take one more step towards oh, I can. an incredible accomplishment of well, yeah, literally it's, one it's of so a crazy. kind by definition right i think yeah. you said in the beginning yeah, I'm, so, I'm so grateful to both of you this was so cool and just uh yeah really grateful i mean you, it zach as i mentioned to you and now even to you dr mike like having this it's literally life-saving and it changes the way i'm approach it even after our call zach like how i'm approaching it it's been a game changer so so, so grateful to both of you for your time, your wisdom. It makes more of a difference than I can possibly convey in words. And it's like game changing beyond oh, just being successful. You. It's life-saving as well. So <laughs> considering the nature of what I'm doing. So I appreciate it. Yeah. Well, I'm honored to have been included yeah, in, in this totally. in any shape or form. And uh, before I let you guys go, I want to like give you a chance to kind of share where people can find you and what you're all up to. So like Dr. Mike, if you want to let the listeners know anything new that you've got coming on, I know you've got your metabolic flexibility courses and stuff always kind of uh, going on there. Is there uh, anything else you want to share? Yeah. So we've got the metabolic flexibility course, which is a flex diet. So just go to flexdiet.com, F-L-E-X-D-I-E-T.com. Uh, I have some stuff on Instagram, which is just Dr. Mike T. Nelson. 
And then the other main course is the physiologic flexibility course where we're looking at things like uh, cold exposure, uh, not to oh. the degree you're going <laughs> to be in. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I feel like I have no excuse not to get in the 40 degree water for literally a couple <laughs> minutes each day now. <laughs> and then hot breathing techniques and high intensity exercise. And that's under physiologicflexibility.com. Very cool. Actually, what do you got uh, in terms of uh, places people can find you? So you can find me on Instagram and then my website is fearvana.com. So that's F-E-A-R-V-A-N-A, Fearvana. Mm -hmm. And I share the adventures. I have trainings where I cover some of the things I'm learning in terms of mental mastery. And then the book Fearvana is on Amazon and Kindle, paperback, audible. Uh, 100% of the profits go to charity. We support like survivors of sex trafficking to former child soldiers to building schools. We've done some pretty cool work. So Fearvana is my whole brand around all the things that I do. Very cool. Uh, excite you're an exciting person <laughs> that's yeah that's I awesome it's yeah, very cool what you've been doing so appreciate uh, you <laughs> yeah well thanks a bunch for taking some time out of your your days guys uh i know actually you're probably looking to get to bed at some point here um <laughs> dr mike you're probably looking to get back to work and uh but thank you so much for taking some time guys appreciate you yeah, thank, thank you. you appreciate it thanks for tuning into this episode of the human performance outliers podcast with zach bitter All right, folks, if you are interested in adding some structure to your training program, I have some options that might interest you. Over on my website, ZachBitter.com, I have a wide range of ready-made plans that have options for beginners to advanced endurance athletes. I also have personalized plan options where I will cater a plan specific to the event you are preparing for and your personal schedule and training availability. You can also access a variety of add-on options from email collaboration to consultation calls to help guide you through your training and nutrition needs. You can access these with or without a formal plan. So head over to ZachBitter.com and let me know what you think.